This is the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. We come to you in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the Most High Yahweh. Tune in each week to hear teachings directly from Scripture, focused upon believing in the Father, His Son, and the holy and righteous law of our Creator. At the end of this broadcast, we will give you the web address whereby you may contact us for further scriptural information. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Brother Matthew with the Ministers of the New Covenant Radio Broadcast. It's great to be back with you here tonight for another chance and opportunity to study our Father's Word. I would like to get back into the subject matter that I talked about three weeks ago. We were discussing the issue of the written Torah versus the oral Torah. Understanding this concept helps tremendously when dealing with certain texts in the New Testament, specifically one that we're going to begin to get into in this sermon. If this is the first time that you've ever heard me talk about this subject, when I use the word Torah, you need to understand that that is the Hebrew word that is translated into English with the word law in the Old Testament. Probably a better way to translate that into English would be the teachings and the instructions of Yahweh. And so when somebody tells you that God's law has been abolished or God's law has been done away with, ask yourself this question. Have the teachings and instructions of God been done away with? Is he not teaching us anymore? Is he not instructing us anymore? So with that being said, let's get right back into our subject matter. What I want to deal with in this lesson is Acts chapter 15. The 15th chapter of the book of Acts is often used in an attempt to teach that God's law is not in effect today, that quote-unquote Gentiles do not need to be obedient to the law of Yahweh, I do not think that based upon a detailed examination of Acts chapter 15, that such is the case. And I hope to begin, at least, to show you that in this lesson. We've got a chapter in Acts 15 that many Bible teachers and pastors use to abolish the Torah. I've heard the question many times when witnessing to people about the law, Matthew, but what do you think about Acts chapter 15? And you might be asking the same question tonight. I'd like to begin to give you the way that I understand this text based upon context, based upon life setting, based upon surrounding factors, understanding key terms within the text itself. We begin our study in Acts 15 verse 1, where we see the subject immediately introduced. The text tells us that there were some men who came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. And the men that were doing the teaching here are identified in verse 5 as believing Pharisees. Now, this means that they were of the party of the Pharisees, but they had also accepted and thus believed in Yeshua as the Messiah, the son of Yahweh. And in case you're not familiar with that terminology, I use the Hebrew name for the Father, which is Yahweh. And I also use the personal Hebrew name for the Messiah, which is Yeshua. 
Most people call our Messiah by the name Jesus, but he was never called by the name Jesus when he walked upon the earth. And I, out of respect and honor for Yahweh's only begotten Son, choose to use the original given Hebrew name for the Messiah, Yeshua, which means he will save. So, what were these believing Pharisees teaching? According to the text, Acts 15, 1-5, they were teaching that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas got into a major dispute with these believing Pharisees. And then there were arrangements made for this controversy to be settled with an assembly in Jerusalem. The controversy arose because Paul and his company had been traveling through many towns and teaching the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the Messiah to everybody that they met. Many of the people they met in their travels were not Judahite people. These people were rather called Gentiles, or in other words, people who were not from the house of Judah, and thus had not been taught to obey the Torah of Yahweh as Judahite children would have been. Now I need to stop right here for a second and kind of go into a little bit about what I mean when I use the term Gentile. To most people, the term Gentile means non-Israelite, but that is not a proper biblical definition of the term. I use the term Gentile or a member of a particular nation, which the word Gentile actually does mean nation, sometimes nations in the plural. But I use it here in this context and for the majority of the context in the New Testament to refer to individual people that did not belong to the house of Judah. What you have to understand is that in the book of First and Second Kings, we have a division in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the chosen nation of God. They are his chosen vessels, chosen people, chosen tribes. He loves them more than anyone else on the face of the earth. And there's multiple passages in the Old and New Testaments to teach that. After King Solomon, the primary king of the nation of Israel, after he died, his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, took his place. But under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, there was a split in the nation of Israel. There was a ten northern tribe house of Israel, of which the capital tribe was Ephraim, and the capital city was Samaria. And then there was a two southern tribe house of Judah, of which the capital tribe was Judah, or Yehuda in Hebrew, and the capital city was Jerusalem. This split came to be known as House of Israel, ten tribes in the north, House of Judah, two tribes in the south. The ten northern tribe House of Israel, according to several prophetic books, one of the best of which is the book of Hosea chapter 1, that house, the ten northern tribes, were divorced or separated from God. 
and then scattered amongst the non-Israelite nations of the world. One passage, I think, in the book of Amos talks about how that they would be sifted. And you think of your mother using one of those flour sifters. They would be sifted amongst the heathens. Thus they would lose their name, Israel, which means ruling with El, ruling with Elohim, the Hebrew word for God. And they would become Gentilized. They would become known as ordinary nations or even to some degree heathens. And this is what Yeshua talks about in Matthew chapter 15 when he refers to him being sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, why are they lost sheep? Well, simply because of the reason that I just explained in brief. Hosea chapter 1. They were divorced, scattered amongst the nations, losing their identity, losing their name. The two southern tribe, house of Judah, maintained their covenantal relationship through the birth of Yeshua the Messiah. And of course we know that Yeshua is of the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7 verse 14 bears that out. It's evident he's from the tribe of Judah. I believe that Yahweh maintained that covenantal relationship with Judah so that his son would be birthed within a tribe that was still in a covenantal relationship with Almighty Yahweh. In the New Testament, when the term Gentiles is used, it often refers to the ten northern tribe house of Israel or particular individuals within the ten northern tribe house of Israel. I'm referring to them as Israel so that you can identify them. Uh, as I said, Yeshua calls them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we have to keep this in mind. When Acts 15 talks about Paul and company traveling in various locations, preaching the word, preaching the gospel to Gentiles, we should not automatically think in our minds that this has to be non-Israelites. Some places it could be non-Israelites that were still of Adamic descent. But in many cases it would be people that were physical Israelites but maybe did not recognize it or had not been reared and raised in a Torah-keeping home because of losing their identity and being sifted amongst the nations. So these Gentiles who were accepting the Messiah in Acts 15 were birthed and raised by parents who did not serve Yahweh. Obviously then, the parents would not have circumcised their male children on the eighth day of the child's life per the commandment in Genesis 17:10-14 and Leviticus chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. We have to understand that Yahweh God commanded that physical circumcision be performed on the children of his people on the eighth day of their life. It's very significant that medically we know that a vitamin, vitamin K, enters in to the body of a human being, the body of a child, on the eighth day of their life. Why this is significant is because vitamin K is a vitamin that helps in the clotting of the blood after the circumcision is performed. If a child receives physical circumcision, a male child, before the eighth day 
of his life, he has to be given a vitamin K shot. If a child, a male child, receives physical circumcision on the eighth day of his life or thereafter, the shot does not have to be given because the vitamin K is naturally being produced by the body. And then we have people that think that Almighty God does not exist and does not know what he's doing with his creation. And I say, this is a bunch of hogwash. This is a natural medicinal proof that the God of Scripture exists and knows exactly who we are and that we're fearfully and wonderfully made by him. So, let's get back to the subject matter at hand. I want you to remember with me, track back a few chapters from Acts 15 and go back to Acts chapter 10. I've taught on Acts chapter 10 in other sermons. You can find these on my website at ministersnewcovenant.org. But in Acts chapter 10, we have a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile man. He was not a Judahite, but he was a God-fearer, and he was not circumcised. In spite of him not being circumcised, the Bible refers to him as being upright and having a good reputation amongst the Judahites. In Acts 10, Cornelius received salvation in Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of Yahweh, without being circumcised. Now, this was evident, or made evident, in the fact that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Cornelius and others while Peter was speaking to them the message about Yeshua. And the text is very specific to say that the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and company in the same way that it had fallen upon the apostles back in Acts chapter 2. Peter asked those circumcised believers that were standing there, Look, can we now forbid water, that is water baptism, upon these men who have received the Holy Spirit in the same way as we at the beginning? And what Peter's talking about there is how he received it, along with others, in Acts chapter 2. We know in Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit there was evidenced by the gift of languages the apostles begin to speak in languages that they had never learned. Now, they were not speaking in gibberish. They were not speaking in a completely unknown tongue, as some denominations teach in churchianity today. No, they were speaking in a tongue that was unknown to them, but that was known to somebody else, because there were devout men, Judahites, out of every nation under heaven, dwelling there in Jerusalem, because the day of Pentecost had fully come. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And so the message of the gospel of the kingdom and the Messiah would be able to get out quicker and further. Yahweh gave those men in Acts 2 a miraculous gift of unknown languages to them so that everybody else that spoke other languages and dialects would be able to hear the message of salvation. Well, that same gift that was poured out upon Peter and company in Acts 2 was given to Cornelius in Acts 10 prior to water baptism. And so Peter is using this in Acts 10 as a proof. He said, look, can we forbid to baptize Cornelius in water? I know he's not circumcised. I know he hasn't proselytized to the Judahite faith. 
But can we forbid water baptism? He got the same exact Holy Spirit that we got back in when the day of Pentecost had fully come after Yeshua ascended up into the heavens. That's what's going on in Acts 10. Now evidently there were some amongst the circumcised believers who were not there in Acts 10 when this happened with Cornelius. And I think it was these fellows who caused such a disturbance in Acts 15 concerning being circumcised in order to be saved. According to Acts 15, these believing Pharisees were telling Paul and Barnabas that it was necessary to circumcise the believing Gentiles and command them to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And we need to understand a couple of things here because this is where most people get completely off track because they do not understand some of what I talked about in my last sermon on the Oral Torah. First off, we need to recognize that it was the believing Pharisees that were making this bold statement in Acts 15, 1-5. Don't forget that the Pharisees were not only believers in the written Torah, but they also believed in an oral Torah. That is, the tradition of the elders. Remember back with me to Matthew 15 and Mark 7 where the Pharisees asked Yeshua, why do your disciples, your followers, not wash their hands ritually and keep the tradition of the elders? Why did they not do this? See, to the Pharisees, when they heard the words, law of Moses, to a Pharisee, that did not just mean the written Torah, but that also meant the oral Torah, the traditions. Now, they believed it was handed down to Moses by God, and then Moses gave it to the 70 elders of Israel, and then they passed it on to the fathers, and from father to son, from father to son, all the way down to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, what we have happening here. I covered in my last sermon that I taught on the Torah that I do not believe that there exists a legitimate, quote-unquote, oral Torah. But to the Pharisee, it existed. Josephus talks about how that to the Pharisee, it existed in his day. So we have to keep this in mind because this means that these Pharisees were not merely discussing whether or not the Gentiles needed to submit to the circumcision given to our father Abraham in Genesis 17. They were saying that the Gentiles needed to fall up under circumcision as they prescribed it to be done. See, the Pharisees had added so many other laws to the written law in the area of circumcision, just like they had did with the Sabbath day and many other commandments in the Torah. It's been said that the Pharisees added over 200 traditional laws to the written law about circumcision. Whereas God said, when you have a male child, circumcise him on the eighth day of his life, period, the Pharisees said, no, it has to be done with this tool, in this method, with this prayer, so much skin, etc., etc., etc. And the Pharisees were saying that the Gentile believers could not be saved unless this first took place. Now, secondarily, I think what was also being taught in a general sense is that circumcision in general comes first, and salvation comes second. Now, I don't believe that that's proper. 
because that makes salvation hinge upon whether or not a person is circumcised. That places circumcision as essential to a man's salvation. And that not only flies in the face of the example of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, but it also flies in the face of the written Torah. In Genesis 15, 1-6, where Abraham was justified while he was uncircumcised. Justified is a legal declaration. It is a term that means to be declared innocent in the court of Yahweh. To be purified. And we know that a person is purified based upon the grace and the mercy of Yahweh and us placing an empty hand of faith in Yahweh's word and his promises and what he has done for us through his only begotten son. So, we see that the believing Pharisees were getting the cart before the horse. Most of the time, what preachers do that teach about Acts 15 is they quickly remark how that circumcision has been done away with. And the law of Moses has been done away with. And anybody that tries to teach others to walk in the law of Moses is committing the same heresy as the Pharisees in Acts 15. But that's not what I get from Acts 15. It's certainly not the picture I've gotten from a detailed, in-depth study of Acts 15. You might get that if you surface skate over Acts 15. If you don't read the context and know the life setting and understand key terms, you might get that if you're sloppy with Yahweh's word. But if you're detailed and diligent and meticulous with Yahweh's word like you should be, you won't get that idea that the law has been abolished. Rather, the passage is teaching Number one, against the oral traditions. Number two, against circumcision coming before salvation. And number three, against the idea that the entire Torah has to be placed upon believing Gentiles all at one time. Now let's move along a little bit and continue to see this in the text. In Acts chapter 15 verses 6 through 9, we see Peter, he stands up and he makes it known that Yahweh used his mouth, Peter's mouth, to first teach these non-Judahites the message about Yeshua the Messiah. He goes on to explain that Yahweh, who knows the heart of men, testified to the Judahite brethren that he, Yahweh, had purified the hearts of the Gentiles by giving them the same Holy Spirit received by the Judahites back in Acts 2. He cleansed both groups in the same way, purifying their hearts by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Now this is the exact same way that Abraham was purified. It was by faith. And as a matter of fact, this is how every man since Adam has ever been declared innocent in Yahweh's eyes. By placing their faith in him. His words, his promises, and not in their self. And see, we've got to understand, this is not only taught in the New Testament. It is also taught in the Old Testament. We have people rising up today, false prophets, false believers, that have denied not only the authenticity of Paul's epistles, but then they deny the rest of the epistles in the New Testament. Then they deny the Gospels. Then they deny Yeshua. And they only accept the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Why? Because they think that the New Testament teaches salvation by grace through faith, but the Old Testament teaches salvation by the law. But that is an erroneous, false, heretical doctrine. The Old Testament does not teach justification or salvation or purification by obedience to the Torah. 
No, it doesn't. It teaches salvation by grace through faith, not of works. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 tells us there is not a just man on earth that does good and never sins. And Psalm 130 verse 3 says that if Yahweh kept track of our iniquities, who would be able to stand in his presence? And the answer is no one. No one would be able to stand in his presence. We don't have two different gods. One God of the Old Testament that is a God of law and then another God of the New Testament that's a God of grace. In reality, if you really study this out, the new covenant is actually the renewed covenant. It's made with the same people, according to Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's made with the same people the old covenant was made with, and it's made with the same laws. He said, I will put my law, not a separate one, but his law in their hearts and in their minds. He'll be their God. They'll be his people. That is the nation of Israel, individual Israelites that come to Yahweh based upon the work that he has done through his only begotten son, Yeshua the Messiah. So it is a covenant renewal. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 talks about, and also Hebrews chapter 10. Every man throughout time has had to be declared innocent by some other way than obedience to the Torah. That's what we learn from the story of Abraham. This is what we learn from the Messiah, when he teaches us in Luke 18 that two men go up into the temple to pray, one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector, and the Pharisee prays to himself, oh, I'm so thankful I'm not like this sinner, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of everything I possess, I'm such a great guy. And Yeshua says the tax collector wouldn't so much as even lift his eyes to heaven, and he said, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And Yeshua said it was the tax collector that went home justified and not the Pharisee. Why? Because the tax collector understood he could not be declared innocent by his obedience. And had the Pharisee knew the truth of the Tanakh, he would have prayed the exact same prayer. He would because he was just as much of a sinner as the tax collector. We're declared innocent not by our obedience. We're declared innocent by trusting in Yahweh's work through His Son, Yeshua. That's how we're declared innocent. That's how we're purified. That's how we're made righteous before Yahweh. So then Peter goes on to declare to the believing Pharisees in Acts 15 verse 10. He says, Why are you testing Yahweh by placing a yoke upon the neck of the Gentiles that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? And this is where a lot of people go haywire and say that the Torah is a yoke of bondage, and you shouldn't place this yoke of bondage, the yoke of the Torah, upon people. Look, whenever people speak like that, I ask them to just open their Bible to Psalm 119. And I want to ask you to do the same. If you think the Torah is a yoke of bondage, you go read Psalm 119th chapter. You read that, and I guarantee you, you will not be able to come back and tell me that the Torah is a yoke of bondage after you read that chapter. It certainly wasn't a yoke of bondage to David. David longed to obey the commandments of Yahweh. He said in one place, streams of rivers, he is crying out of his eyes because people have rejected the Torah, the law of Yahweh. So what is the yoke of bondage referring to? I believe it's twofold. Very quickly as I close out this sermon, and we'll pick this back up next week. I believe it referred to both the traditions of the elders, that is the Pharisees' way of keeping the Torah, as well as trying to say that a person's salvation is based upon their own works. 
Number one, there were many unscriptural practices the Pharisees believed had to be accomplished by a person. The number of laws added to Yahweh's law by the Pharisees is in the thousands. And number two, the yoke includes the fact the Pharisees were teaching salvation by something the person did rather than salvation by what Yahweh has done through his only begotten son, Yeshua the Messiah. See, whether it's circumcision or any other commandment in the Torah, a person's salvation is not dependent upon their ability to obey. That truly is a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear because we've all sinned. Even if you started right now and obeyed the Torah perfectly, you still wouldn't be able to enter into the kingdom based upon your obedience because of your past transgressions. That's why we have to put our faith in the one man who never transgressed. And that is the son of Yahweh, Yeshua. He will save his people from their sins. You put your faith in him. I'll pick this back up next week. Until then, may Yahweh bless you. And shalom. You've been listening to the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. Our website is ministersnewcovenant.org. That's ministersnewcovenant.org. Please visit our website where you will find hundreds of audio sermons as well as videos, books, and articles explaining various doctrines in the scriptural faith. For questions, you can also call 678-347-6240. That's 678-347-6240. Thanks for listening, and according to His will, may Yahweh richly bless.